Ladies and gentlemen, hello, and welcome to FNA Talks, a series of technology and industry updates with FNAers and friends. My name is Philip Straley, and I'm FNA's president. At FNA Talks, we're drawing on the expertise of key global fintech, regtech, and souptech experts to bring you curated content of global relevance to the financial services industry. Today's session will focus on the topic of intraday liquidity management in banking, including coverage of current market dynamics that impact this. I'm pleased to be joined today by Jesse Drennan of HSBC. Jesse is well known to many of you in the industry and is a senior vice president of HSBC based in New York. Jesse's role with HSBC covers optimization of business processes and technology across emerging markets rates, commodities, and foreign exchange businesses globally. And Jesse is also a member of a number of global capital markets industry bodies representing HSBC and market-related initiatives. Now, turning to today's topic, active management of intraday liquidity in banks has become much more critical over the decade plus since the 2008 crisis. Regulators have substantially increased expectations, both on liquidity levels and with respect to banks' capabilities for measurement, monitoring, and management of intraday liquidity. At the same time, the market has changed substantially. Challenger banks and challenger financial market infrastructures, including new forms of payment and settlement mechanisms, are placing new competitive demands on large international banks at the same time as they open up new market opportunities for these banks. Likewise, new technologies for liquidity monitoring, active liquidity management, and advanced analytics are opening up new avenues for banks to take better advantage of these market opportunities. So with that, thanks, Jesse, for joining us here today. Thanks for having me, Phil. So let's get straight to our discussion. Jesse, I'd like to start a bit big picture. 2020 has obviously been a challenging year on a number of fronts with the ongoing global pandemic, but also with substantial ongoing innovation and changes to operating models. How do you see the market dynamics of this and recent years having impacted the plans of large, large global banks around how they position for the future, including with respect to global liquidity management? Uh, I think it's a great question. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of investment in the payments landscape and, and in particular cross-border uh, the last few years, and we've seen a number of, of fintechs and, and large techs, super techs, I think you referred to them before, uh, emerging uh, as payment processors and payment networks and, and providing consumer, ex you know, consumer uh, journeys around cr particularly cross-border payments and actually domestic payments as well, although I've seen FX, we, we focus on cross-border. I think the big thing we saw coming into 2020 was people still had this bit of a hangover around, is this real? Is it necessary? Is it needed? Is it going to happen? Um, and two things happened, right? So with COVID and, and social distancing and people wanting to, to limit their interactions with one another, particularly on the consumer side, the idea of, of digital money and, and touchless, contactless payments really, really accelerated, right? And so we moved away from physical cash, physical money, to actually we're in a world of, of 
digital money, even more digital money than previously uh, we possibly were speaking of. And I think we think the consumer experiences they're having now are going to start to make their way into the boardroom in terms of how the corporates start to think about treasury uh, and the things that they do. The other thing is, is actually because people came into working from home and they were in lockdown and, and they were basically just bored, right? They had time on their hands. Um, we've seen a lot more introspection and a lot more interesting conversations taking place around what's possible and how do we achieve it? How do we go about executing it? Um, because people actually had that downtime to actually go away and think, um, like I said, to sort of reflect on, on what was going on. I think coming out of it, there's three things or three themes that we've seen consistently across the conversations we're having, which are all around cash, collateral, and capital. How do I optimize those three things? And if I think of them as sort of a, a cube or a vector, I don't know, a Rubik's cube, whatever you want to call it, it's sort of how do I move among those three dimensions? What's the optimal pathway as I think about uh, the various solutions and the various things that we're offering uh, in order to optimize all three within any context or any problem space that we're, uh, that we're operating in? Yeah, thanks, Jesse. I think I think that uh, that construct around the three C's is very useful, actually, way to way to frame it. Um, so if we if we if we turn specifically to the topic of, of intraday liquidity capabilities, um, what do you see as having been the key focuses related to intraday liquidity in the market over the last two or three years? And what do you see as priorities for the next year or two? Sure. I think when we look back the last couple of years, right, obviously DLT was a lot of, there was a lot of noise around DLT and, and distributed ledger, Bitcoin, et cetera. Um, what we were doing within HSBC was trying to look through and say, what are the business drivers? What are the outcomes people are looking for? Um, I think we had a presumption that technology will mature and, and will come along, but what are the things people are actually looking to change? What are the outcomes uh, that they're looking for? Right. And, and it seems to have settled into a couple of different things, right? So one is around, um, the costs associated with correspondent banking. Um, and in particular, you start to get into almost immediately the participation in the national payment system or the, the central bank, you know, in terms of access to local market or, or local settlement um, and the costs associated with that. And then obviously the oversight involved with, with participation in those, uh, in those payment schemes. Uh, the other thing that we noticed was that within that, you start to get into some very interesting uh, experiences around corporate uh, commercial activity. Um, so we've in particular become very focused on good delivery versus payment sort of scenarios. Um, and in particular, there's a huge reliance on dollars today, right? So it's seen as we'll do everything in dollars. It's, it's a universal currency and everything can move. Um, but as you punch through that, there's still this friction that starts to build up within some of these companies, both around financing, um, but also obviously their need for local currency in order to pay employees pay for their buildings, you know, the costs associated with being physically present uh, in a jurisdiction. And so I think we see two things coming together now. We see that uh, a number, about a large amount of the work that's happened around uh, in particular DLT and focusing in on cross-border payments, good funds, and et cetera, et cetera, uh, we think is going to start to drive some changes, both in the public sphere and in the private sphere. Um, but then on the corporate side, there's been so much work done on uh, supply chain, deep supply chain, understanding where goods and services are in terms of routing. Uh, but for some reason, that's never crossed its way into Treasury. And so you still have anonymous cash flows, aggregate cash flows coming into Treasury with very, very deep understanding of the drivers, the commercial drivers that are happening on the back end. We think the two of these things start to integrate. And so you now have very smart cash, I guess is the term we'd use, in terms of this cash is related to these goods and services. 
they're now on the, you know, they're on a ship, they've been rolled, they're now out to sea, whatever. And you can start to have that really dynamic interaction happening between the deep supply chain data that the firms have developed and their cash projections and the treasury activity that they have going. And ultimately, we think that's building up towards, like I said, good delivery versus payment, where we're actually talking about the right currency in the right amount at the right time, all coming together and being delivered, right? So the financial system starts to catch up with what's happened on the supply side, and the two things start to interact and, and come together. And clearly, intraday liquidity, the availability of cash at a moment in time becomes hugely, hugely important for that kind of outcome to come out um, and be developed. But there's a whole series of things behind that that have to happen in order for that to become reality, right? We don't have today really intraday liquidity markets where a bank could go out and say, look, I'm long... I don't know, 200 million pounds, does anybody need this, and lend it on an hourly basis or on a, on a half-day basis, right? That probably needs to emerge at some point. And, and there are initiatives in the marketplace that, that are exploring that, right? Uh, there are probably things around, I don't know, liquidity bridges, uh, for instance, where I have excess capital, say, on with one central bank, I actually need currency in the other central bank, can they somehow interact with each other to help facilitate that sort of commercial integration, again, between themselves, uh, as an example, right? So there's a series of tools they clearly need to be developed um, and refined to allow these things to come in. Uh, and I think what we're seeing is a lot of the stuff that's been happening in the fintech space is sort of small experiment. Um, it's now a question of uh, how do you scale that? What are the risks that it's presenting? How do we mitigate those risks? And now how do we start to scale into sort of a broader, bigger opportunity space uh, in terms of, of these commercial opportunities, uh, both for the banks, but also for our customers in terms of just capital efficiency around the entire space? Excellent. No, that, I think that's a that's a good lead-in. You know, the I think the last point around, particularly around customer expectations, Jesse. Um, I guess building on the topic of changes more broadly in market dynamics. You know, with with challenger financial institutions coming into play, um, challenger banks, challenger FMIs, stable coins, and the like. Um, can you make some comments on how you see these developments impacting the market? and banks thinking, uh, particularly from the standpoint on changes to client expectations and from the standpoint of the systemic risks which are created by these new entrants. Sure, I think, um, let's break it down. So I think the first part is the customer expectation piece, right? So today with some of these solutions, I go out, I say I need to do, I don't know, dollars to euros. And instantly I have euros, instantly I'm spending euros in, in say, Europe in the local market. Um, whilst in the background, potentially there's a spot trade happening. There's a two-day lag between the cash. Um, and effectively, there's, there's asymmetry, right, between the funding activity and the customer spending activity that's happening. Um, now, that works in, in some sense, right? If you have a balanced network and the inflows and the outflows net each other out, actually you're just sort of just washing it all through and actually don't really need liquidity under the cash that you have on hand. Um, similarly, um, you know, there's some credit happening in there and there's a bit of a chance to, to punt, I guess, the currency if you're the operator of that sort of network. Um, and we've seen that work successfully, but we've also seen those blow up in the past where, you know, suddenly an unexpected move happens, um, the provider gets caught out and it all sort of blows up. Um, I think the concern for the big banks, um, for the universal banks, I'd say, is, is we participate in these in, in, in various different ways, right? So. In one way, we can be a liquidity provider um, and provide credit into these networks and sort of participate actively as, as participants in the network. Uh, but we're also a Nostro provider to, to consumers and to corporates. And so if our customers are actually reliant on these networks to behave and, and to perform in a certain way, 
then we have a dependency, a passive dependency on these networks performing and, and, and activating. And I think the concern just becomes around the transparency that, that happens into these, right? Like, what are their dependencies on the various nodes within that network, right? Is there a small regional bank that perhaps is, is over-leveraged or over, uh, they're over-reliant upon in that network that if they were to have an issue, it's going to cascade across that network? We have no visibility of that today just because there are no disclosure rules and they're sort of viewed as, as unregulated or semi-regulated financial networks, right? Um, the other piece would be then, again, this asymmetry of, of risk in terms of uh, what are their funding gaps? What is the amount of carry they actually have? What is the market risk that's building up potentially and credit risk building up in the system? Without our ability to really evaluate those models, really understand what's happening, it becomes very difficult for us to evaluate effectively the safety of those systems, right? And, and the systemic safety of those systems. Uh, and then finally, again, without disclosure, particularly for the private companies, you get into these issues around, well, how much volume is actually going through there? How reliant are people actually becoming on these networks? And then, again, what are the propagation issues that could occur, right? A very small network with very little going through it, nobody really cares, right? And so I think actually Esmond has done a really good job in terms of thinking about this stuff, right? Because as these networks become more important, you don't want to stifle the innovation by stifling them with massive amount of regulation and a compliance officer and staffing and everything in the initial phases. But certainly as they start to penetrate, as they start to grow, increased oversight, increased safety and soundness, increased engagement with them to understand how they're going to address these issues. And, and I was going to say force, but I think that's the right word, right? Working with them to now mitigate and, and manage away some of the risks that may be there latent in the network as they were proving out the model needs to happen, right? And so having a proportional framework where these firms can work through, having the right partnership with banks, so it's not we're out to destroy the banks, but actually understanding that we come with a very specific perspective um, actually, we have a lot of valuable tools and a lot of valuable thinking around the network effect and the systemic risk that comes with these network effects. Um, you know, I think we're valuable partners in this journey of, in terms of maturing these things, um, but then also enabling large value scale to happen across these networks. And, and that seems to have been the gap, right? Is, is, is you come in with a death to banks mentality, which is probably five years old at this point, but yeah, and hopefully it's been transforming, but th that's a very different view than coming in, hey, we need a partner, you guys understand the financial system, you're there in these countries, right? And, and, and so it's bridging that, I think, and breaking that down that's going to be the next phase of this journey. And, and we've seen that already you know, behaviorally for a number of these companies. I think that continues. And I think the central banks start to come in maybe around some of this as well, right? We've seen through the G20, uh, they're looking at stable coins and some of the alternate technologies. It implies there's going to be some degree of partnership with fintech, and it now becomes private, public, in terms of the financial sector, with the fintech, and the three of us together are now forming this sort of new wave of of innovation or this transformation that's happening in the in the payment sphere, the cross-border settlement sphere. Yeah, I think I think that's a great lead-in. Um, you know, so if we if we look forward a bit, um, so maybe look out to the horizon a bit, a few years out to the horizon. Um, Jesse, what do you what do you see as the set of end state outcomes in the market, um, and and what do these outcomes mean for individual large banks' capabilities and positioning? Uh, sure, uh, I think there's a couple of things here, right? So, I think there's one view that would say all of this is a threat. The entire banking model is under threat, and our commercial model is going to collapse. Um, and certainly there's going to be pieces of our revenue model which are under attack. Um, but every threat is also an opportunity, 
right? And so it's all about just positioning and, and understanding what are your core capabilities, um, what is the value financial institutions bring to, to these offer, you know, into this space, to the sphere. Certainly, being regulated, being licensed in all the jurisdictions, etc., is something that's very, very hard to replicate. You know, you couldn't imagine a large uh, financial, a large, sorry, a technical company going and suddenly just acquiring licenses in all these different countries that they want to maybe offer, say, payment services in. Um, they could, and certainly they have the wallet for it, but it's a huge challenge and, and would take a long time uh, for that to take place, right? So it's, it's understanding what are your assets and, and what do you bring? I think as I was saying before, we think it's down to good delivery versus payment um, and starting to bridge the, the big data revolution that's happened in, say, the manufacturing sector with the treasury piece and, and linking those things together and starting to have more of a data interaction happening between the commercial drivers themselves in the physical world and the treasury and the cash piece on, on the other side. Within the bank set, then it creates a number of interesting opportunities uh, in terms of how we service the client, how we help the client understand their hedging opportunities, how we help the client understand their credit opportunities, um, what the cost of capital becomes in terms of our ability to offer, because we have much greater visibility into, again, those commercial drivers and what's happening uh, across our balance sheet or across the balance sheet that we're extending uh, to them. Uh, but it also raises a number of issues around data privacy and, and what happens, you know, are, are there threshold issues around data being exposed to the banks that maybe shouldn't be exposed to the banks? Is there data that's maybe crossing um, that you don't want to? And then controlling that data from a corporate's perspective in a multi-banking environment, right? So they probably don't want leakage to, to one firm versus the other firm, or maybe they do. Um, but again, it's all about controlling that. And then obviously on the banking side, we have all sort of data barriers and, and, and such are put in place. We don't want that data leakage to happen either. And so it's making it airtight to ensure that it doesn't cross over um, or, or those barriers aren't being breached inadvertently um, and creating you know, awkward situations, um, I think at best, uh, between ourselves uh, and our clients. And then finally, like I said before, I do think there's a, a huge transformation that has to take place, both in terms of the public sphere and the private sphere, right? So as I look at the intraday liquidity challenge, um, and we start to think about instant payment on a wholesale basis across the globe, there's clearly changes we need to make for ourselves. But a lot of that's also driven by policy changes at the central banks, right? So things like the operating hours of the RTGS, um, harmonization of standards. You know, it'd be amazing if there was actually standardization of uh, settlement finality and bankruptcy law across the board. So we actually had you know, similar timings, similar expectations in terms of clawback provisions, et cetera. Uh, there's probably work on our private contracts around the Nostro accounts um, and what the Nostro agents' abilities are uh, with respect to their ability to also pull back funds and or, or provisionally credit uh, our accounts. Um, and then if you think of the money turning much more quickly, settlement value becomes hugely important in terms of who owns the money when. And if I'm three or four transactions down the chain, does somebody actually have the ability to actually unwind that entire chain and start to pull that whole thing back or not because I have the money free and clear, right? These issues all start to come to the fore. Again, like I said, it's a public sphere. It's the private sphere. It's working together, pushing and pulling each other that starts to drive these outcomes, I think, in order to get us to these sort of outcomes at scale whilst making sure that we're not doing it in a systemically risky way. Excellent. Um, and I guess, guess turning, turning inward, you know, and given the complexity of, of intraday liquidity issues um, and the fact that there are a large number of internal stakeholders within a large financial institution with respect to intraday management across, across group treasury, cash operations, uh, markets and treasury services businesses, um, and particularly for very large banks, 
Um, Jesse, could you, could you provide a summary of how you see internal processes being optimized going forward, uh, plus any final points um, that, that you'd have on the broader ecosystem, including the central bank dynamics? Sure, I think intraday liquidity is basically a network problem. Right, I guess that's why FNA it can, can play so well in the space, right? The end in, in FNA. Um, internally, when we looked at it, so, so I've looked at interstate liquidity for the foreign exchange business, the wholesale foreign exchange business, right? And, and I sort of came in with a thesis that we tend to be large value settlement. The other stuff that's happening is large value, but it happens to be smaller pieces in terms of our retail bank or our commercial bank. And so therefore, if the large value pieces get optimized, there's a natural benefit that sort of would accrue into, into the other business lines that interact with those Nostro accounts. I think what we found through our work with yourselves was actually this stuff is really, really correlated. It's, it's heavily intertwined and, and actually even the small pieces getting moved, it's, it's like a big game of Jenga can topple the entire tower um, or have ripple effects, unforeseen effects um, across, the, uh, across the network. Um, I think in the old days, in the 90s, when they did chaos theory, they'd say the butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil sets off a hurricane in Miami, right? Um, it sort of is, it seems to be one of those scenarios, right? So there's clearly coordination um, and collaboration, which is necessary across the business lines around how do we optimize, what are we optimizing towards, right? And so clearly a set strategy uh, agreement amongst uh, senior stakeholders um, and a recognition that, that there needs to be points where this data comes together and, uh, and optimized, effectively operationalized, um, before going back into its respective silos um, becomes super critical in terms of, of how do we achieve that for ourselves. Um, as mentioned before, we then play, our network is then playing in a broader network, which is that of, of a local economy and, and the global economy. Um, and so those same sort of issues start to arise yet again, right, in terms of what are the interactions that are happening at large across um, multiple banks, what are their, what's happening within their local networks, and how do these things start to interact. Um, and here the central bank or the national payment system acts as effectively a central node again for, for some of this. And so you get into what are the things that can happen amongst them, again, to create capital efficiencies, cash efficiencies within the local economy uh, amongst the participants within that payment system. And I think it's the interaction actually between those sub-networks and, and the macro network, um, which is super, super interesting, but this is where there's apparent, it's apparent there's, there's gaps in terms of I don't know what it is, transparency and reporting, probably some of the operational skills that we need in order to, to do these things. Um, and then just the data and the, and the modeling and the, uh, actually it's, it's a lot of probably behavioral analysis in terms of what do we expect consumers to do as these things open up and therefore what is the true demand that all are sort of just mulling around and, and, and mashing around that we need to figure out. Um, and come up with a structure, a substrate that we can start to, to frame the problem, break it down, and execute into, uh, in order to achieve a lot of the stuff that we are um, that we're speaking of. Excellent, thanks, Jesse. I think that I think that's a great way to wrap. Um, so we'll conclude the session for today um, with those points. We very much appreciate the time that you took with us and for sharing your insights today. I think you've given us and listeners quite a lot to think about, um, as well as some practical takeaways on a very important topic for, for banks and the broader market today. So thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Paul.